Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hi, this is Andrew Dunkley, and welcome to Space Nuts. And with me, as always, my partner in crime, astronomer Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. <laughs> Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? Um, good, good. I, did, I just I revealed our, our criminal record. I'm yeah, sorry for that. <laughs> oh, well, look, um, partners in crime is always a good thing to be. <laughs> mm. Uh, as uh, we do every week, we talk about uh, things that are happening in the astronomical world, whether that's happening on Earth or in a far distant place. And a far distant place is something we're going to focus on today. In fact, it is the most distant place that we know of, um, which doesn't mean it is the most distant place, but it's the one that we've found. Uh, also, solar systems made of Lego and uh, daylight saving ending in eastern states of Australia. And, and the reason we're going to talk about that, and I know it's probably of no uh, real interest to people beyond that part of the world, but daylight saving exists in many parts of the world. Uh, and it's one of those issues that's constantly in debate. And in, in our part of the world, in New South Wales particularly, the fight continues to stop it. Uh, but that fight hasn't been won as yet. But uh, we'll get on to daylight saving because you get a lot of questions about it. I know that. But first, uh, let's look at the most distant object uh, known to humankind, and that is a galaxy that's uh, recently been discovered by the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, indeed, that's right. So, uh, of course, the Hubble is has such a high profile. Many people are familiar with it. Uh, it has the clarity of imaging that comes by placing a largish telescope, 2.4 metres in diameter, above the Earth's atmosphere. And that allows us to see uh, objects which, um, you know, seen from here on the Earth, they'd be blurred out by the atmosphere. So, so we wouldn't see them at all. Uh, in particular, what the Hubble has done a number of times, actually, through its history, is looked at blank patches of sky for a long time. And by doing that, has picked up the faintest objects that we, we know. Uh, and that uh, usually means the most distant objects. And this particular uh, object that has now been found is has the record as the most distant object known. It's a galaxy. Uh, we are seeing it as it was when the universe was in its infancy. So uh, it, uh, the, the universe was 400 million years old when this galaxy uh, emitted the light that we're now seeing. Uh, today, the universe is over 13.8 billion years old. And so uh, what we're doing is we're looking back over something like 97% of the age of the universe to a time when this galaxy emitted its light. And of course, we do that, uh, this looking back because of the finite speed of light, 300,000 kilometers per second. So we're always looking back in time. We never really see anything beyond Earth in, in real time. And in fact, this object at this moment wouldn't look anything like we're seeing it now. 
No, that's right. Uh, absolutely, because uh, 13, 13.8 billion, 13.4 billion years have gone by yeah. since the light left it. Um, one of the things that um, is worth mentioning about this, Andrew, is that uh, it does tell you just how the Hubble telescope itself has evolved over its 26-year lifetime. Because uh, when uh, it first started peering down into the depths of the universe, it was it was able to look back over something like half the age of the universe. So, you know, looking back seven or eight billion uh, years in time. But now we're looking back 97% of the age of the universe. And that's all about techn technological improvement in the power of the Hubble telescope. It's kind of its last hurrah because the Hubble will be superseded in a couple of years by the James Webb Space Telescope. But uh, the Hubble is still doing marvellous work. And this particular galaxy, uh, I must tell you what it's called. It's got a great name. <laughs> Here G we go. GNZ11. <laughs> so GNZ11 is, um, is shining away there at 13.4 billion light years away. It's taken its light that long to get here. The observation, however, it has to be said, has raised a little bit of controversy. And in particular, somebody I know quite well, a very eminent professor, Richard Ellis, who I used to know when he worked in the United Kingdom. He's now based in Caltech uh, in California, but I think he's working with the European Southern Observatory at the moment. But Richard cautions against putting too much weight on this observation because what you have to do to guarantee that you're measuring um, a real look back time. In other words, you know, you're looking back all those uh, billions of years. What you have to do to guarantee it usually is to make your observations from a very large ground based telescope with a thing called a spectrograph, which breaks the light up into its rainbow of colors and allows you to look at a barcode of information that's imprinted on that. Now, um, the Hubble telescope is nowhere near as big as these large ground-based telescopes. And eventually, I think with the assistance of something called adaptive optics, which gets rid of the blurring effect of the atmosphere, eventually uh, GNZ11 will be observed with a ground-based telescope, and that might confirm its identity. But at the moment, all we have is observations made from the Hubble by looking at its light, looking at the light of the galaxy through different colored filters. And by doing that, you can infer the evidence for, um, for its great distance. But it's not a watertight observation. So Richard Ellis, um, as he tends to, is uh, counselling caution on, on this observation. Whether he is right to be cautious, we will no doubt see down the track. And maybe he, he even, it may even be that he is one of the scientists who makes the observation that actually guarantees or that confirms that this object is at the distance that it is. Uh, so it's a story with um, a, an ending yet to be told. But at the moment, it is the candidate for the most distant object known to humankind. It is in the constellation of the Great Bear in the far northern hemisphere, so we can't see it from here in the south, uh, but that happens to be one of my favourite constellations, so I'm very happy about that. Mm. Well, we'll just have to, uh, if, you know, if, uh, if it proves not to be, we'll just have to grin and bear it. <laughs> there you go. That's, uh, that's was my turn, Brett. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, let me let me, no, let, me um, let me top that because you're going to uh, gazump me. Yeah, I am because uh, actually it's in the uh, uh, there's part of the the Great Bear constellation which we call the Plough, 
And um, so we'll just plow on with our um, with our research into where this is because uh, GNZ11 is right in the middle of the plow. That's uh, <laughs> that's cutting edge technology, Fred. <laughs> you keep trying, I'll keep coming back. <laughs> uh, you're listening to the Space Nuts, and we're certainly proving that uh, with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Now, Fred. Um, you don't usually think of space, the final frontier, and Lego being within the same boundaries, but that is uh, certainly proving the case because um, a fellow has built a, uh, a partial solar system out of Lego. And, and look, let's be honest, this is not a first. This is something <laughs> that a lot of people have done with Lego. But what's so special about this model? Uh, the special thing is that uh, this is a fairly accurate one. So the, his name is Jason Alleman. Uh, he uh, actually, you know, I think he badges himself as J.K. Brickworks because he spent his life putting Lego together. And, of course, Lego, that great Danish uh, toy that uh, is so much a product of our era and from which many, many things have been built. Uh, this is the first time, though, I've seen uh, a working model of the sun, the moon and the earth uh, in the shape of what is called an orrery. Uh, an orrery, an unusual word, and it actually comes about uh, because uh, I think it was in the 18th century that the Earl of Orrery, uh, an Irish uh, uh, nobleman, uh, actually wanted somebody to build for him a little model of the sun, uh, the earth and the moon, all geared together so that the motions of these objects took place in the correct ratios and then you put a crank handle on the side and you wind it and the whole thing goes round and you can see how the moon and the sun, uh, you know, how, the, how they behave in terms of their celestial effects. Usually uh, you don't put anything else in. There are orreries because they've been made uh, over, uh, over all the, the, the centuries since. There are orreries that have other planets on them. Um, but the simplest ones are the, the sun, the earth and the moon. And Usually these 17th, sorry, these 18th century ones were beautifully crafted from polished wood and brass, and they're very, very desirable with collectors. There are a few uh, orrery makers around today still, mm. in fact, one in Australia. However, um, going back to the Lego one, Lego is, of course, a relatively straightforward medium to work in if you're trying to build something mechanical and you are thoughtfully provided with... Uh, gears and things like that. I think that's from, if I remember rightly, it's Lego Technic. I remember my son's yeah. having that a long time ago. Uh, all those bits and pieces can be put together to make something that actually forms a fairly accurate representation, not in terms of its physical scale, but in terms of the times, you know, the ratios of, of the, the Earth going around the sun and the moon going around the Earth and all these objects re revolving uh, um, uh, on their axes, I beg your pardon, rotating on their axes, um, these, uh, this can be created with Lego. And in fact, the BBC has a very nice... Um, page on its uh, Earth website, uh, which uh, includes a video of how you can make this thing. Uh, and uh, so, you know, it's not something that's uh, now limited to the engineers at NASA or craftsmen uh, in the 18th century. Anybody can build one of these things, assuming you can afford all the bits and pieces of uh, Lego that you need to do it. Yes, well, I've seen some pretty amazing Lego models. I've, uh, I've visited the, the, the Lego thing in, um, in the United States where they've just got stuff that's floor to ceiling made of Lego. Yes. It's just, it blows your mind that they're made of tiny little brick 
plastic bricks. But uh, <laughs> uh, this one, yeah, I've, I've watched the, the video and uh, he certainly goes into a lot of detail explaining how, how it was all done and uh, and yet it still uses a crank in this modern world of ours where there are, you know, there are electric motors. He's chosen a crank. Um, but... <laughs> Yeah, what what I suppose the point is that uh, he he's built it to a, a scale where everything happens as it probably would in in reality. Very nearly, that's right. They're, they're not quite uh, perfectly accurate, but they're near enough to give you a very good representation of what happens when the when the, these celestial bodies uh, go through their celestial clockwork. Mm, easier to sit there and do it at your desk and look at it than try to that's figure right. it out by looking at the sky. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're listening to The Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with astronomer Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, to uh, a controversial topic, one that uh, comes up a couple of times a year in our part of the world and certainly uh, is uh, common in many parts of the world, that of daylight saving. Now, historically, from what I understand, daylight saving was introduced during a time of war at the beginning of last century to save on fuel so that there was more daylight at um, busier parts of the day so we didn't waste fuel so that it could be put into the war effort. That's my understanding of the dawning of daylight saving. Of course, now it's more of a leisure thing and we have always had debate in New South Wales, Australia about whether or not we should have it or should it be shorter. Daylight saving here goes for about five months, which is a very long period of time. I think when I was a kid and they introduced it, again after a referendum it didn't go nearly that long so it's been extended over the years and yet there are a lot of people who think it's a terrible waste of time and we should just drop it completely what's the fascination with daylight saving in the <laughs> astronomical world well um for astronomers actually um we tend to ignore it you know because clearly the stars don't bother about uh, daylight saving so when we're observing uh, we we always work on standard time uh, but uh, you're quite right. It is such an emotive issue. Uh, and I think with good reason, because um, there, are, there are people coming from all different sides of the argument, and they've all got very good arguments. Uh, let's dispel one of them straight away. It does not fade the carpet, uh, <laughs> because you don't actually affect the amount of light uh, that falls on your carpet. But... Uh, you're quite right, Andrew. It does go back, uh, actually, to the First World War. Believe it or not, daylight saving was suggested about um, two decades earlier, in the 1890s, by a Kiwi uh, who was um, somebody whose hobby was, um, I think it was bird watching or wildflowers or I'm just going to stop like you that. there for a second Fred because you mentioned bird watching I don't know if you can hear it but I've got a tapping on my window right now right and it's a little blue wren a fairy wren oh, lovely. that's taken residence <laughs> in my backyard and every day he comes to the window and tries to beat the living hell out of his reflection because he thinks it's a rival <laughs> and he's there right now tapping like crazy and yeah, actually um, he's probably <laughs> He's probably trying to beat the living daylights out of him. Maybe <laughs> so, yeah. I just thought, you know, you've got Katmandu who visits occasionally. I've got a little blue fairy wren. He's gorgeous too, by the way. Um, sure he is. I love those fairy wrens. They're great. Um, so, uh, yes, so the, the, this uh, Kiwi, uh, sadly I can't remember his name, but he th figured that if you if you shifted the uh, the hour in the summer months, you'd get more time to watch your flowers or birds or whatever it was, or fairy wrens that he was watching. But it was, uh, believe it or not, it was in uh, 1916 that we first saw uh, the real uh, introduction of daylight saving time, and that was in Germany. 
because that was uh, in the middle of the First World War. Germany did it to save on coal, and that was really the, the reason for uh, the introduction of daylight saving throughout the, the last century. It was whenever there is a requirement for energy savings, that's when it tends to be introduced and tends to come into prominence. So the, the Germans did it in 1916. Uh, the, uh, the UK and the, uh, the Dominions, uh, the, the British Empire, um, uh, introduced it in 1917, uh, following suit because of the need to save energy. Uh, and then uh, throughout the uh, the war years of the Second World War, 1942 to 1944, daylight saving was introduced in Australia, uh, once again as a consequence of the need uh, to save energy. The the, the uh, reason why it's popped up at the moment, Andrew, is because in Tasmania, there is currently an energy crisis going on. There's a problem with the, the Bass Strait cable, and there are problems with, um, with uh, hydroelectric reservoirs being highly depleted. And so there is an issue with, uh, with energy in Tasmania, uh, and the Tas Tasmanian government is, I believe, looking at the idea of extending their daylight saving time to help with that problem. Uh, which is uh, actually very interesting uh, and rather coincidental because uh, it was, as you said, when you were a kid that uh, daylight saving was reintroduced after the time of the Second World War. It was in the late 1960s, early 70s, and actually Tasmania was the first state to introduce it uh, as a permanent uh, or, or regular feature uh, back in 1967, the summer of 67, 68. So uh, Tasmania has a special place in the history of daylight saving. It will be interesting to see what they do about this energy crisis. Um, one other aspect of this, though, that um, I, I might be able to shed a bit of personal light on is that um, if you if you are excessive in your use of daylight saving time, in other words, you extend it, you know, beyond the summer months and maybe even make it all year round, then there are consequences. Because back in the early 1970s, there was an energy, energy crisis then, an oil crisis. Uh, and in the United Kingdom, they introduced daylight saving throughout the year. It was called British Standard Time. Mm. And uh, it meant that the hour, the clock was put on by an hour for the whole year. Now, in Scotland, where I was living at the time, I was a student actually in Scotland at that time. And of course, that's at a fairly high latitude. And it meant that during the winter, um, uh, the sun wasn't coming up until 10 o'clock or something like that, which uh, meant that kids were going to school in the dark, we were going to work or university in the dark. It was not a happy time. And I think the psychological effect of that was such as to uh, make it very much a dire straits um, uh, course of action to take if, you're, if you do want to save energy on that scale. So not a popular thing to do. And that, um, that's perhaps something that uh, uh, all states that are, that are thinking of extending their daylight saving time need to take into account. Yes, indeed. And it uh, has similar consequences in Australia. And I think in terms of energy saving, it can be the opposite because we have um, light until uh, nearly 9pm in some parts of the country and 
uh, because it's a hot country in many respects, you, yes. you, you're still ramming up the air conditioning, air conditioning for, exactly. for that right. at that end of the day. So you're actually burning energy rather yep. than saving it. So, yep. yeah, there's a lot of debate. Uh, a lot of the farmers don't like it. Uh, a lot of the parents who live on isolated properties don't like it because they're getting, as you said, getting their children up in the dark to get them to the school bus. There, there are all sorts of uh, twos and fro's as to whether or not it's a great idea. From my perspective... I love it, but only from a social uh, <laughs> a social respect. Uh, when I used to get up in the wee small hours in the dark, in fact, uh, when they extended daylight saving and I used to do breakfast radio, uh, there were a couple of weeks of the year before the extension where I got to see the sun going to work. Yes. And that, that was evaporated. So for, for the last eight years or so, I was getting up in the dark every day of the year. So... I can see the the reasons why people want it shortened or uh, wiped out completely, but um, yes, that's a debate that will continue. I'm I'm pretty sure. Maybe it depends on whether you're a morning person or an evening person. <laughs> Maybe so. Yes, <laughs> as always, Fred. It's uh, it's great talking to you. Uh, thank you so much, and we'll uh, we'll do it all again next week. It sounds great. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Good to talk to you, Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, and from me and the Space Nuts crew, Andrew Dunkley. It is goodbye. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audio Boom, and Stitcher, or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. From Audioboom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify, or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.